HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Did you know that oat milk uses a lot less water, less land, and creates far less greenhouse gases than cow's milk? This useful fact is brought to you by Oatly, the vegan oat milk originally from Sweden that's now available in the U.S. You can find out more useful facts than you'd ever want to know about oat milk at Oatly.com. That's O-A-T-L-Y dot com. Hardcore is a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. Really, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that cider started to be revitalized in the United States. From the science of fermentation. So yeast, it's a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus. To the magic of terroir. What really excites us is thinking about communicating that very sort of spiritual aspect of knowing a piece of land. We're setting aside our cider donuts to gain a deeper understanding of this singular beverage. I love a cider donut. You don't have to have a cider donut with your cider, and I will die on that point. Subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Rodney Manzo, founder and CEO of Anvil, a technology platform focused on supply chain that has helped brands like Hims, Native, and Swell create more simplified, more transparent supply chains, making them less chunky, clunky. That was the word I meant to sure. say. It's also less chunky yep. um, and less expensive, in turn creating higher quality products more efficiently. Um, and I'm particular, I don't know, I'm like oddly excited for this episode. I keep saying like, I'm yeah. so excited. And you're kind of like, why? <laughs> um, but I do feel like we talk a lot about great brands in this podcast, but we're building businesses, not just brands. And I feel like the difference between a really solid brand and a really great business 
is that back-end stuff. It's the logistics and the ingredients and the warehousing and the freight and, you know, all that jazz. Um, and that seems to be your sweet spot. Absolutely. And yeah. thank you for having me. I'm yeah. excited to be here. So I'm, I'm pumped. Um, and I sent my list of questions to my operations folks on my team hmm. just to see if they had any others. So they threw a few in too. Oh, nice. So yeah, you're giving me free advice right now. Okay, I'm ready. Just so you know. Um, Rodney's an expert in supply chain and operations and has launched products around the world. Um, I think this is going to be super useful and we're going to get right into it. So um, I don't know if you've listened to this before, but um, I do like to ask what you wanted to be when you grew up and what you were like and where you grew up, because it's kind of fun to picture like a nine-year-old you, you know, building a telescope or whatever it is, and then picturing what you do now. So tell me a little bit about what you were like and where you grew up. Yeah, very humble beginnings. I'm from Oregon originally. Um, huge West Coast Oregon fan. Nice. Anything made over there, Nike, et cetera. I love it. Uh-huh. Um, and that was always a question, like, what do you want to be? Right. And I never had a great answer. But very early on, when I started going to undergrad, I was laser focused for the rest of my career. Okay. Yeah. On? So, yeah. So I <laughs> went to West Point. Right. Industrial Systems Engineer and Operations. Yeah. So you wanted to be an engineer? Yeah, exactly. Right. And um, I was an engineer officer where I had two different roles. Um, one of those was supply chain. I was a right. master aerolotus planner, logistician, purchasing agent, moving men, equipment around the world, and buying things. Wow. Um, and the other one was more kinetic. Right. I was an army ranger, sapper, jumping out of planes. What is doing... a sapper? I saw that. What yeah. does that mean? It's old language. It mean breaching. You'd go and breach. Breach uh, like other enemy lines? Yeah. Is that- French, you would go and breach into a castle, like dig holes. Oh, that's very breaches. cool. <laughs> yeah. And now we do it with demolition. So right. it's a little bit different. Right. But yeah. It's um, just a classic uh, engineer uh, for any army, really. It's a wow. sapper or sapier. So did you think, oh, got it. It's French. Did you think that you wanted to stay in the army forever? Or like, was it a way to get an education and you just kind of had to pay your dues? Like, what Yeah, was- I loved it. I mean, I did everything I possibly could. At the time, I was in between my second deployment. I was going in between Afghanistan and Iraq. And I was making the decision, do I want to stay in and continue to do that? Or do I want to pursue something else? And I decided to pursue something else. Right. It was um, it was a decision truly when I was at my fifth year mark in the military. Right. You're not the first military. Um, you're, I think, my third military person. Wow. Um, and I think that there are probably some, I will not stretch it to say that there are a ton, but I do think that there are some overlapping lessons between building a great business and probably the things that you learn being in the military. I would imagine operations and logistics is part of it, but have you sort of thought about any of the parallels a little bit or the lessons that you really wish, I'm sure you work with people who don't necessarily have the same discipline or perhaps you wish that they had had a little bit of what you had (laughs) in military training. You know, there's that book about like the guy, I guess, who went to, um, who went to the Naval Academy and it's like lessons for life from, you know, so. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a few things that I think about, um, in life outside of the military. Yep. Um, there's one, uh, discussion where it was like, 
what you need to do is just make your bed in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you do that, you're going to be set for life. Yeah. Uh, but there's different things like um, how you structure the company. Uh, leadership's obviously big in the military where um, both indirect and direct influence. So yep. a lot of the military terminology is like your lieutenants. Right. Um, you know, companies use all these things. Yeah. Uh, but the military is great. Uh, I had, when I started, you know, it was undergrad, 20, early 20s. Um, I'll, all my direct reports, they were in their late 30s. Mm. So going into that was, you know, right. very interesting. But same happens in companies, all yep. different ages, all different experiences, expertise, and you have to navigate through that. So speaking of leadership, do you feel like you take a lot of the lessons that you learn there and apply them in your leadership style? Do you feel like you've had to amend it because of working in a different industry, maybe with more millennials or, you know, how, how have you, have you changed it or softened it or like, yeah, I think it's uh, situationally dependent mm -hmm. on the person and what you're doing. So there's three main drivers I look at, um, or I, as far as my leadership principles, it's just being super transparent. Yeah making sure everyone knows what you're thinking, what you're doing. So we're all rowing together, if Context, you will. Yeah. The next is um, tons of autonomy. Yeah. Where, you know, you're a lean startup, lean team. You have to have people that just go. Can go. Yeah. And that's kind of the third one, which is they over-index on action. Um, you want to do things quickly and efficiently, and you don't want to delay. I think when you delay as a company, that is death. It's for an early stage company. You know, it's interesting. I was just reading, I think her name's Laura McCormick. I don't, I, I'm not sure what her last name is, but she helped, uh, she was like head of people at Netflix and like was part of that. Have you seen her book? Yeah, I read it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Is that her name? Laura? No, it's, um, I, it's on the tip of my tongue, yeah. but yeah, Patty McCord. Patty McCord. <laughs> so I knew it. I was Laura, Laura McCormick-ish. Yeah. Um, but you know, it made, it kind of was like, it, I felt validated in a way because I, I mean, I think I was not in the military, nor yeah. do I have an HR background, but I do have five kids. <laughs> and I learned that like I, if, if I try to manage everything, I'm going to fail and I'm going to like really upset a lot of people. So yep. for me, it's, it's about, you know, not only making sure that everyone knows kind of how their, what their personal sort of jobs are going to do to affect the bigger picture, which I think yep. is that transparency, but also just you know, when people are autonomous, they're going to perform better, yeah. but they can't, you can't expect them to be autonomous if you're not telling them sort of like what you're hoping to accomplish in the yeah. next year or six months or three yeah. months. I know? agree. And I, I think another major takeaway from her book, I think what's powerful was uh, going back to the over index on action. Yeah. She was like, we started as a DVD company yeah. to the mail and we quickly stopped that and they instantly... Right. They were like, I, we had amazing people, but we had to let them go. Yeah. We were a different business that than we were, so we had to change quickly. Yeah. So they do that over and over again. It's an um, interesting culture. Yeah. But not for everyone. Nope. But no culture is. Yeah. Um, okay. So you went from West Point, and then you were an engineer officer, and then you left, and you went to Booz Allen. Is that right? Yeah. I was okay. consulting uh, really operations for the federal government. Uh, I did that while I was applying for my GMAT. Can you give me an example? So the federal government is like, hey, 
Rodney. Yeah. Like what's a problem that they need solved that yeah. they, you then are like consulting them on operations for? Yeah. One, the biggest one is, um, you probably know things like CODIS, um, it's fingerprint identity, uh-huh, uh-huh. uh, but there's all different, uh, forms of that. So there's a federal state, local level, what happened, they were all siloed. So if you did something, let's say in a foreign country uh-huh. and you had your f- fingerprints taken, you may not get picked up. Oh. So a big part of that was operationalizing that. So making sure everything talked and making right. sure the equipment that they're using was standardized. I mean, Maddie, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I thought what's kind of neat about that was when I was doing that, I, biometrics is like essentially saying you're you. Uh-huh. Now it's everywhere and we're developing all that. And that was, I mean, now years and years ago. Right. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff is like flying over my head. I don't, I still don't understand how like a fax machine works <laughs> <laughs> or like the radio. Yeah. Matt, how does this work? Okay. So then after that, you went to Apple. Correct. And you were the, a global supply manager for them. So that basically meant like helping them organize getting parts to make things. Three different... <laughs> Uh, functions in in one. It was close. Okay. Very, yeah, very, thank you. Very thank close. you, Rodney. Yeah. Um, so number one, material program management. Uh, mm-hmm. What are you producing? When are you producing it? Mm-hmm. Kind of supply demand thing. Yep. The next is new product introduction. Yep. So going through a process of nothing into a finished good. That's cool. And then lastly, it's the more of the sustaining program project management piece. So once you do launch something, what are you doing? From, right. You know, zero units all the way to millions and millions of wow. units. Okay, and then you left there and yes. went to Harry's. I did. Um, and then was Harry's, was it happening then or did you help it start happening? It was. It was definitely happening. Okay. It was right <laughs> after they bought the factory for $100 million in Germany. Okay, I remember that. That was a big move. Yeah, yep. and I, I went in a uh, team of two. Uh, oh. Uh, Aki and Pooja uh-huh. who are still amazing, still in supply chain today. Yeah. Uh, no longer, sadly, with Harry's. But... Um, so that we just restructured and rebuilt what was happening really around that material program management, right. MPI and sustaining piece. But it was unbelievable because going from such a huge company in Apple mm-hmm. where I'll say they're one of the best supply chain companies on the planet. Right. And I can go and why, yeah. but to Harry's and getting to put that in place and seeing all the rewards from putting in processes and really growing out the team globally. It's so cool. I mean, I have like a gazillion questions, but we have to, I want to get to like where you'll be able to help a founder like me because I could ask you all this stuff too. Um, So then you went to go get an MBA and because you knew you wanted to start your own thing or? So I did that before, before Apple. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So Apple, I, um, I, MBA intern at Apple, went back to Apple and then I went to Harry's after just, uh, I was excited about a close knit small team yep. and building, which yeah. I was able to do. You got to basically build their whole supply chain. Yeah. Uh, from like the beginning. Exactly. Wow. And, and and change it, which is even cooler. Yeah, that Both is that cool. Both team in China, uh, scaled uh, the team in Germany, in the US. So it was really global initiatives, launched in retail, uh, launched globally. Wow. It was unbelievable, the opportunity there. And then you wanted to start your own thing. 
Yeah. Did you, were you, um, did you want to start your own thing and then you thought like, okay, here's the thing I can start? Or were you like, why doesn't this exist? Like, how did, how did Anvil start? And maybe, because yeah. I, I read it and I, I think I read it right from, yeah. <laughs> but like, you did a great maybe, job. thank you, aside from chunky supply <laughs> chain, maybe you could just also sort of say exactly what you do. Yeah. You know, no, um, absolutely. And how you work with companies. Um, so Anvil is a just a supply chain technology where we're a cloud-based system where we do production, uh, really everything from a PO until it arrives to where it needs to go. So visibility and workflow tool. So think of like a e modern-day ERP, but I'll say better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's more functional, visual, uh, just for a comparison. But uh, how it came about, it was like through my personal pain. Mm-hmm. So it was like a head scratcher. I was sourcing all over the world, Africa, Asia, Middle East, Europe, North America. The biggest company on earth in Apple at the time, and they, I think are again, all the way down to Harry's, and it was the exact same. And the things that I kept on seeing yeah. that was confusing, manual, everything's essentially phone calls, pen and paper, and uh, driven on Excel. Mm -hmm. The other is it's really non-digitized you know, as in being manual. Right. And last, lastly, it's non-visual. So nothing's telling you what's happening and kind of having you see around the corner. Yes, that's true. I had 300 plus million dollars of spend at Apple. Wow. I had a tremendous budget at Harry's and there was no solution. So I was like, if there's nothing I can buy, I need to be that solution. I love supply chain. I'm always going to be in it. And right. I was like, Anvil has to be that solution that I can't find. And so you basically built that. Yeah, quickly hired uh, product design designers, engineers, product managers, uh, data scientists to put technology where it was manual. And so I'm going to break it down and like mm -hmm. make it super, I'm only going to relate it back to me because that's sure. basically all I can do. But yeah. so we are not a direct to consumer company. We have, you know, we have 46 separate ingredients. I know mm -hmm. that's nothing, but like for five SKUs, it's yep. actually a lot for us. Yep. Um, we have pouches. We have the parts of the pouches, right? Because you don't just buy a pouch. You buy like the fitment and the cap and the, and the material and then the plates and you print the plates. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, and then we have like the corrugated boxes yep. that they sit in. So those are all the components. Yep. And then we have production where we make it, and then we have warehousing where we store it, and then we have freight when we distribute it. Yeah. And then I would continue on thinking about supply chain as like demand planning. So like, even though they're not necessarily parts of the system, it kind of is in the sense that like we have to figure out, okay, if we're going on promotion in April and we know this is our historical sort of like how we do on promotion, yeah. we need to produce more in January. So it gets picked up in February. Yeah. So every part of that you touch in so, some way. Correct. So uh, just kind of breaking this down yeah. for your bill of materials, everything would be in Anvil. So what is it by SKU? If you have any relationships, who's a supplier, anything now that has happened. So MOQs, old right. production runs. Just everyone listening, MOQ is minimum order quantity. Yeah, sorry. No, I no, it's okay. We yeah. just, I like, 
I get the stink eye from Matt in the booth. And also, <laughs> like, I really try hard. <laughs> Thanks for the thumbs I, up. I like this is really f- breaking it down. Like, I didn't know any yeah. of this stuff. I didn't know what an MOQ was until like three months ago. So, yeah. like, now that I do, I can throw it around. But, yeah. um, and basically, that comes from if you are not producing your own sauce, in my case, and there is a co-packer, co-manufacturer who's making it, they're not just going to make two of them because it's not in their best interest to um, just make whatever you need. So they have a minimum order quantity and probably at a certain cadence, you have to order you know, these minimums Correct. per this time frame, basically. Yeah. And the problem for a lot of small businesses like mine or like emerging brands um, is that we don't we don't even have close to the volume of yeah. those production facilities. So that, that tends to be a little bit of a, of a pain point. Yeah, no, correct. It is. And if you're not at scale and you have economies of scale, you typically pay more. Right. But there's a way around that, that we could probably talk about. Cool. We're going to. Yeah. Um, so then. So all that database with all of your parts, suppliers, then that's where really we get powerful. So once you start issuing purchase orders, mm-hmm. that's all digitized. So something that would take you uh, tens, if not longer, a minute, right. we can do in seconds. Right. And then it's digitized. PO management, production management, shipment, uh, all your files, everything's there. And then also you see it. So right. you can see wherever your product is in the world. It's That's very cool. It's really cool. So we connect into all the ecosystems, freight forwarders. We digitally connect. So you them. connect with all of the truckers too? We So we're <laughs> outbound. So okay. everything from your manufacturer into your distribution center or retailer. Yeah. So you can see all that. Wow. And think of a nice, beautiful map around the world and your products just going through. Our map is not quite around the world yet, but yep. it's, it is very, I mean, it's, it's, it's very cool. I mean, there's, it's a very clunky slash chunky yep. system. Um, okay. So um, I guess, why don't we take a break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about all the pain points for companies like mine mm-hmm. and how you solve them. Perfect. And then if, if we're not quite ready to hire a you, um, all the advice you have so you yeah. can help us solve our own problems. I'm ready. All right. We'll be right back. In the Sauce is brought to you by Oatly, the vegan plant-based oat milk originally from Sweden that's now making their oat milk on this side of the Atlantic. About 30 years ago, in a small town in Sweden, a scientist invented oat milk, and everyone thought he was totally crazy. Fast forward to New York 30 years later, and we just can't keep it in stock at Haven's Kitchen. That's because it tastes great and foams really well in coffee, but I think also a lot of the customers at Haven's Kitchen drink it because it has much less environmental impact than regular cow's milk and uses a ton less water to produce than almond milk. So while it's an amazing product, I think more and more people in the U.S. and around the world are starting to understand the benefits of eating and drinking oat milk. You can find out more about Oatly, the vegan plant-based oat milk originally from Sweden at Oatly.com. That's O-A-T-L-Y.com. Hi, I'm back with Rodney Manzo from Anvil. Okay, all about supply chain. Let's get into it. Okay, 
what are in your, and so you were just saying in the break, like the, the pain points might actually all be the same, whether you're a $500,000 company or a $500 million company. Um, what are they? Three things you need to focus on constantly. Yep. And it's in these order. Okay. So quality. Yep. Quality of your product, quality of the supplier, production. Yep. And lastly, cost. Right. Without quality, you're not going to produce product and it doesn't matter what you're producing. And then if you don't have quality in production, it doesn't matter what you're spending. Right. So those are the three pillars you need to be focused on in any business that's making a physical product. And where do you see what, if you get 10 calls a day, eight of them are probably similar and they are, I can't find someone to produce X, Y, Z, or I don't like my production part. Like what are, what are the pain? Yeah. What are they? That depend on the stages. So more early stage, it's like, how do I find a supplier? Yeah. Uh, If you go on Google, it's not very helpful. No. If you go on Alibaba, that's a little bit more helpful, but I would not recommend it. No. And so there's other things to find one, but that would be the first. Yeah. The other is how do I make this more digitized? Right. If you're a bigger company. How do I clean up the system a little bit? How do we connect this fragmented world? And if you were, I mean, for us, we, you know, when we first started, we just got any pouches we could get. And they were ridiculously expensive, but I didn't yeah. even know if we had a viable product. So I yeah. wasn't going to like go out and try to sure. figure anything out. Um, but where, if, if, if you were starting, if you were, let's say a year or two old mm-hmm. and you had like a million in sales and you had a product and it was picking up speed and you knew yeah. that things were happening and someone said, go try to tidy up your supply chain, Yeah, where would you start? Yeah, this is actually what I did at Harry's, so this is perfect. Okay, cool. The first thing is strategic sourcing. So you look internally at your business. Mm -hmm. There's a whole nine-step process around this. A.T. Kearney perfected it. A.T. Kearney? Consulting firm. Okay, Um, cool. uh, They developed the process. I do a remix of it, if you will. (laughs) Like, Yeah, exactly. Um, You you look internally at your business. Right. So it's like everything you're doing, uh, what you're going to be doing, now, the future, et cetera. And then you start a strategy around that. So am I going to single source? Am I going to ne- negotiate? What does that mean? Only have one supplier. Am I going to have multiple suppliers? Got it. Am I going to negotiate on cost? Do I not care about cost? Do I care about ramping and volume? Right. But you have a strategy and you're super mindful of what you're doing. Right. Because once you go out, then you can put that into practice. So in my case, just making that practical, my strategy was like, I want to get to 40% margin. Yep. And so... I went through every piece of that puzzle, every cost I had, and we tried to figure out how to get it down. Exactly. What, without sacrificing, obviously, yeah. quality. Then you lay out all of your costs, costs from the initial order all the way until it's probably delivered. Yep. And then you're like, you would target the ones that are most expensive to get down the margin. Right. So that's one thing. It's funny because, you know, we do have this list of 45. Yeah. We tried to order them as like, the ones that like we use the most, you know, and like the ones that are the most expensive, but there are some that are like, you only use a tiny little bit and yeah, they're expensive. But like in our case, like the piquillo peppers and our romesco sauce, we're probably not getting those in any less expensive. Like it's a small farmer, they don't produce a lot, but fortunately we don't need a ton of them. So you mean go sort of 
line by line. Yeah, exactly. Lay every single thing out that you're doing, and then you put a strategy around what you're doing and why, and, and being super thoughtful with that. Do you see, if you had to choose sort of like where you're going to see the most cost savings, would you say freight, warehousing, or suppliers? Like, It's product dependent, truthfully. Right, okay. Um, if you're like Harry's or Apple, it's the physical product. Right. So it's not so warehousing that, I mean, it's a big uh, cost, not so much logistics. Right. Logistics is pretty easy to source out. There's just so many freight forwarders that are so easy to Refrigerated? find. Refrigerated? Uh, <laughs> there's, you know, numerous, right? right? Okay. And there are public companies that you could rapidly find. Right. And I would just find those and then you essentially price them out yep. against each other and then you negotiate. However, you were just mentioning one where you had a limited like supply of a product. Yes. That's difficult. Right. And that you need to be more nuanced in the negotiation strategies there. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about negotiation. Yeah. Um, my guess is that you've learned a few things. I have. I'm also reading another book. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like this self-help, but not for self, yeah. like for business. I okay. don't know what that would be called. There is a section, I'm sure, at yeah. Barnes & Noble. But um, someone very smart told me to read a book called Never Split the Difference. Yeah. It's, it's true. It's by like an old FBI agent, yeah. and he wrote this book on negotiating. And... Um, I'm just reading it and like trying to kind of put some of it into practice. It's not natural, I would say, but what would you say top three? Because all of these things are negotiable. Yeah. Every price you're quoted for everything in this game is negotiable. I love to negotiate. Yeah. Um, So how, why do you love it? How do you get someone who doesn't love it to love it? And what are your tips? Yeah. Number one, there's structure around it. Okay. And a lot of people don't go into this with structure. Okay. Um, and I'll talk about that structure. Yeah, I'm excited for that. The second thing, though, it happens before you get in the room. Right. So you need to be super, super mindful and do everything ahead of time. It's your homework. So that structure, I'll say a few acronyms, and I'll go into those acronyms. Yeah. So um, overall, there's a zone. It's called ZOPA, Zone of Possible Agreement. Okay. So there's a zone that you're willing to buy this for. and Right. And the supplier's willing to sell it for. Yep. That could be super broad. It could be super tight, but you need to figure that out. How do you figure that out? You have probably a quote from them, but you should have multiple quotes. Okay. So you can see where that zone is. Right. If it's something like a commodity, like resin, that's from oil. You can then look at what is oil trading. So there's a bunch of different ways to find costs of products. Right. So that that's the first thing. Figure out your Zopa. So does that kind of mean like, because I remember I did some exercise once where I was a bookseller and I got like what my, my, like what my minimum price to sell it for and someone else was the book buyer and they got their maximum and then we all kind of went out into a room and you kind of know what your low, yeah. like what you're willing to spend, what the maximum you're, like you kind of know your stuff. Is that what you mean? So that's bit? the third thing, which are reservation points. Okay. So then can, what do you mean by? Those, those are the ends. So it's Got like, it. I will not buy something for more than X. Right. And this seller will not sell something for more than Y. Right. So you know that those are the end points. Right. The encapsulated zone. Right. Got it. So that's the second thing. Okay. And the third is BATNA, better alternative to negotiated agreement. Right. So it's like, where else can I go? What else can I do? Maybe you don't need that source. Maybe you don't need that actual product. 
um, Corgate. There's dozens and dozens of Corgate manufacturers. Right. Maybe you have a better alternative in Asia versus the U.S. Right. Or in Chicago versus Florida, whatever it may be. But you know you can go somewhere else. So if you have those three things, you're going to win at negotiating. And so it all really boils down to, because all three things have to do with doing your research. Ahead of time. Yeah, ahead of time. And what I see a lot of people doing, they'll just go into a meeting and they'll be like, how much can you make this product for? Right. And they'll tell you $100, even though it could be a dollar. Right. And they didn't do any research realizing it could be a dollar ahead of time. So this is really helpful. So for all of you founders who are about to go meet a new co-packer, let's say, or like you're ready to stop producing on your own or like move out of someplace into another place, don't go in blind. Do research. Ask other companies what they're doing. Get a couple of different quotes. Talk to a couple of different people. I think that one of the common denominators, and he does say it in Never Split the Difference, is... Yeah. And I know I have this tendency um, to fill space a little bit and not to like let the other person yeah. <laughs> talk and and make them answer questions. Yeah, his whole thing is like ask a ton of questions. Yeah, you know. Sure. Yeah, and the, to, for us in manufacturing, that's called bottoms up cost. Mm-hmm. So it's what are the raw materials going in this? How much are the like weight of the raw materials? How right. much do they cost per kg or whatever? What's the steps to make this product in direct labor, direct labor, machine rate, cycle times, yield, session, profit, overhead? I can keep on rattling things off. Right. But that's how you uncover everything. And you can ask those questions to truly see how much you should be spending. Right. Okay. Very cool. Okay. So suppliers, that's a big place where people, A, probably overspend, B, yeah probably could do better and find efficiencies, yep. um, all within the context of finding the most credible, most honest, and quality forward suppliers. And do you vet suppliers for your companies? Yeah. Um, so we, I didn't mention this, we do have a marketplace uh, as Anvil, but there's four pillars I would look at, and Anvil aside. This I is love how you're breaking anyone. things down into like threes yeah. and fours. It's so, Operations, that's I how I I love it because I'm like bulleting and yeah. writing little notes. Yeah. So the first thing I'd be looking at as a supplier, and you have to go and see them. Yes. Unless someone's vetting that you trust, and uh, I would go see them no matter what, truthfully, right. just because I love seeing suppliers. Yep. But number one is social responsibility. Okay. And, you know, the things underneath that, no child labor, no yep. hazardous materials. Companies just got beat up this year about child labor. Really? Uh, yeah, in Bangladesh and India. Yes. A lot of cut and sew. Right. So just cut and sew, I'd be careful. Right. The next is operations. Okay. What kind of equipment is it maintained? Who maintains it? What kind of expertise do they have? Do they have certifications, etc.? Yeah, especially I mean, when you're making food, yeah. it's um, you can't just trust that whoever it's making your food that you're putting out with your label is yeah. being safe. Yeah, you, you it's ideally you could, but you can't. Yeah, well, that leads into the third one, which yep. is the quality. Yeah. So you look at their quality processes, like incoming quality control, in-process quality control, outgoing quality control, their labs, their tests that they have, their certifications, round quality. Yep. And then lastly, it's the financial situation of the business. Like you want them not to be about to go bankrupt. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't want to invest a lot of time and your money in right. this company. Or you to... don't want to be their like Hail Mary yeah. product, right? Exactly. Um, That's a little more difficult. If they're publicly traded, you clearly can see that. But right. if they're not, you just, you have to dig into it a little more. So you, you do find sort of 
these like vetted in these four steps, these suppliers for potential, like for Anvil clients. Exactly. And yeah. Yeah. We do that a lot. And I I would just say like a very easy thing when you're at a factory. Yeah. Does it feel right? Yeah. Look, smell, like what are you hearing? And if it does, like you go to a good factory, you're like, wow, that's a really good factory. Just like a restaurant. I know. Some of them are beautiful. Yep. You know? Um, and they, and you stand in this like shower and like it washes your feet. I mean, not of, not yeah. a real shower, but air, like air shower, air yeah. shower. Yep. yep. Um, Clean room. and, and then in terms of the best practices in managing a co-packer, yeah. like what would you say are, you know, what have you seen work and what have you seen really not work? A consistency always works. Okay. So you probably care about those three pillars. I'll just go back to those. Yep. Quality. So how much are they making inputs, like outputs? Like what are the quality issues that they're seeing? Why are they seeing that? So like quality reporting. Right. So one quality document. The other So you want a quality document every production run? Yeah. Yep. I would in I do a production document that feeds into a quality document. Okay. So every single time that they do it. A simple stand, like a simple format on Excel, if you're not digitizing it, is fine. Right. Okay. This is really helpful. Yeah. And um, from there, you want to always discuss what's happening. So have a regular meeting right. and check in. Right. And or just go and go to the factory. But right. That's difficult. And do you think that, I mean, assuming it's, we're still talking about sort of like smaller brands in the food yeah. world. Do you think it's, should you go to the first six production runs and just be there until... I mean, does it show them that you don't trust them or yeah. does it show them that you're an involved partner? Is it something they expect? Yeah. If you're doing like new product introduction, I'd always be there for that. Right. For sure. And as you're scaling the initial runs, you just want to understand and see it, which will help you with negotiations later on and cost discussions. But you'd want to be there. Okay. In terms of hiring... So, I mean, I think it's probably, if it's not the first hire that a founder will do, it's definitely within the top three, right? People hire operations people pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. The last time I had an operations person on, I think it was the second episode of the podcast. Hmm. And I had literally no clue. I was like, so you just do everything? (laughs) And he was like, yep, pretty much. I'm like, cool. Yeah. That was the end of the podcast. But (laughs) I... What would you say if, you know, let's say two founders and they started a sauce and it's going well and now it's time to like really streamline those operations and move to a co-packer and mm-hmm. start negotiating and figure out efficiencies and they're getting a lot more, you know, when you first start, you get one PO and you produce for the PO, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, and now all of a sudden you have to start yeah. doing demand planning we're probably not going to be able to hire someone with a ton of uh, operations experience. Yeah. So what would you say we should look for? Yeah. Or I'm not looking, Diana, just in case. Anyone. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, this is a good time to tell you no. Yeah. Um, but what would you say are sort of like the top things you would look for? Yeah. So having a broad-based operator is like where you want to be, but a lot of times it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So I'll say you get an inch wide, mile deep in a few key areas. Okay. Inch wide, mile deep yeah. in a few areas. 
yeah, like, you know, the perfect world was they can do everything. That no one doesn't, can do everything. That right. normally doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, they're good at one or two, and then they're knowledgeable at the others. Okay. And how I, I've seen it um, breaks down into, like, the planning, forecasting, SNOP piece. What's that? Sales, operations, and planning. So it's um, just, like, how much you're producing, when you're going to produce it. You know, supply and demand. Right. That's all it is. So someone's really good at, you know, running numbers. The other piece is um, the logistics and di- distribution side. Right. So, so one's almost like analytics and the other is like more like real operations and making the product. Exactly. Right. Like very, very hands-on versus more hands-off where they haven't gone to a factory. Right. So the second one would be in distribution logistics and the, um, the third one would be into like factory supplier management, like sourcing quality production. Right. And you obviously talk to the other two in anything, mm-hmm. but it depends how deep you are in any of those areas. If I was an early brand, I'm biased. I'd buy, like, I wouldn't buy, but I would hire someone who does sourcing. Right. And all that. I would want to get that off my plate if I was a founder immediately. Yep. Yeah. What would be the things you would, you'd, you'd want to get sourcing off your plate? Yeah, definitely. So I, w- I would get all of it. Right. I would like not want to do any of that. Yeah. And a good person should be knowledgeable in those other areas, but they're going to be an expert in probably one or two. I think sometimes people, for me, I very quickly outsourced finance. Yeah. Like my operations team touches it and they like, yep. they're the holder of it in a way, but they're not doing accounts receivable. They're not doing accounts payable. Like there's no, that to me is like the way I would, I would, suggest breaking it down, you know, because a lot of people, they kind of start something and then it takes off and they, then they have to just build a team. And usually it's like, I'm going to, this person's going to get the yogurt made or this person's going to like run the, you know, talk to the cookie producer and that's their first hire. Yeah. So the qualities that you would look for are, I would imagine organization. How do you test for something like that? I, take people in whatever's in the room, uh-huh. I tell me, I t- ask them, do strategic sourcing for this, do new product introduction for this, and do manufacturing for this. And I'm like, walk me through. And it could be a highlighter. It could be a pencil. Okay. So I'm going to do that with you for a second. Okay. This, this book. Yep. Do product sourcing for me. I, I, so strategic sourcing. <laughs> strategic how many, how many of those books are we making this year? How many skew variations are we doing? Right. Um, do we have any requirement to where we're building this book? Like, does it have to be made in the USA? Right. You know, you want that stamp or not. So you go through all these lists of questions internally. Wow. And then from there, you would develop your supplier strategy. So it's kind of like Porter's Five Forces, where it's like you're looking at threat and new entrance. What is it? Porter's Five, five Forces. Okay. What if is you, that? It's, um, it's super old school business. We're yeah, talking about it. like 30 plus years ago. Great. So I uh, still talk about Henry Ford. So like, <laughs> you, you probably used it. Yeah. yeah. Now it's way after Henry Ford. Porter's <laughs> five forces. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're looking through the entire ecosystem of what could or may happen. And you're thinking really logically and thoughtfully around the supply chain and internal ecosystem of your business. Okay. So what are there five forces? Yeah. Okay. There's, <laughs> and I go through each, but you just, you look through that and that starts developing your, your supplier strategy. Okay. So that's, you haven't even produced a product yet and you're right. just learning and you're being 
super focused on that. From there, you develop it with the supplier, you get the supplier, and then you do new product introduction where um, I'm biased to one process, but it's called stage gating. Oh my gosh, where it's this is so like crazy. Pre-proto, proto, engineering verification, design, and then uh, production verification. So EVT, DVT, PBT. <laughs> and then you're mass producing the product. Right. And then you have a layer of quality planning underneath that MPI. So you're like, how many do I need? Can I, do I have a, the production line, the tooling? Do I have the batch? Whatever it may be to right. make that scale. And then so with the book, I'd yeah. be like, okay, clearly that's paper. What what type of paper? Right. The binding is a different. Is that the same supplier? Does someone do a binding versus just the paper? Right. Or do I want to source the actual paper or do I want someone who makes books to do all the sourcing for me? Right. And then you're going and breaking down everything. And then finally you're you're doing the MPI producing NPI. scaling new product introduction. Right. Okay. If it's a brand new product. Right. Uh, then you're scaling, shipping, and then you're wherever it may go, distribution center, warehouse, right. retailer. And then you could do a lot of those strategies around negotiation with your distribution center and logistics provider. So I have a very specific question since yeah. I'm getting all this advice from you specifically. So we have a refrigerated product. We do not currently sell it direct to consumer. Um, it's expensive. People don't necessarily buy sauce. Like in bulk, they're not necessarily going to get a subscription to it. And right now we're doing an exercise internally where we're trying to figure out, is there a way to get this, you know, directly into the hands of people that want it? We've kind of established it's probably not going to be one pouch at a time. We might have to freeze it. Yeah. What would be sort of like... <clears throat> I guess the first couple of questions you would ask yourself if you were us trying to figure out if this is a viable, you know, distribution option for us. Uh, all about margins. Right. Does it fundamentally make sense for the business? Is there a business case for that? I mean, I think in our case, there's, there's, I don't know if this is the answer to your question, but I think one is the net terms are zero, which is always nice for a business like mine. Yeah. The payment terms. Right. Yep. So like, just to explain that to people, we're waiting to get paid by a retailer or by a distributor. Could be 30 days, could be 60 days, could be a few months. When you get direct to consumer, they pay and that money is in your bank account, essentially. So the net terms on that for us is zero, which is nice for cash flow. So it's a thought. The other is obviously just like the ability to send something directly to a consumer and be able to communicate with them directly and know them and have them know us and, you know, all of that. Um, I would imagine that from a cost perspective, it's not going to be all that much less expensive for us because the shipping is going to be really expensive and, yeah. and the packaging. You're adding a ton of weight on the shipping with yeah. a, as you're freezing it. If yeah. you're going to have something that actually may, keeps it frozen. Right. Uh, or this- just the ice pack that keeps it, refrigerated which That's doesn't heavy. always yeah, yep. yeah blue apron i mean if you've ever done any of that they're doing it and it's a heavy box right. to ship yep so so you would look at like would you consider that a compelling business case or no what i just said only i would i mean the change <laughs> would be that ice pack right so i'd right. be like what is the cost of the ice pack both that individual cost and the weight of that well product. also we couldn't do it out of haven's kitchen 
So, so we would have to then figure out a, like a pick and pack kind of distribution center. Yep. And then we would have to build out the optionality on our website. Exactly. Right. And all that, you know, there's some kind of cost structure with that. And it's the ROI there to go direct just business-wise. Obviously, right. there's tons of benefits. This is why all these direct-to-consumer yep. companies are successful. Well, they're also, a lot of them are really lightweight. And yep. the ones that aren't, you can get in a subscription. So it yeah. makes sense to get a case of heavy beverage. Yeah. You know? A lot of times, one pound is kind of a magic shipping number. Right. You want to get below that. That's not always the case. Right. But a lot of times, that's like what you want. And you can quickly go past that. Okay. We only have a couple more minutes. Okay. I mean, I feel like this could go on for great. a long time. It goes quickly, doesn't yeah, it? it does. Yeah, I know, because it's fun. Um, okay. So one of the things that you do is you streamline relationships between brands and manufacturers. Correct. I think we've kind of gotten to it, but you know, aside from sort of like communicating with them and like being consistent with them, are there any systems internally on the brand side? that we can sort of set early on to sort of set yeah. ourselves up with like some good rules for sort of like growing with yeah. a production manufacturer. Yeah. It goes back to knowing your manufacturers, like um, what's our capacities, like their lead times, how long does it take them? Like knowing all that stuff ahead of time. So as you're scaling, you can scale with them or away from them. So meaning I know that these guys can make, uh, you know, 50,000 pouches a month. And I'm probably going to hit 50,000 pouches a month based on the sales I have coming in in 2020 in April, which means that I have to start planning. Yeah. Right. You probably have to move away from them right. or talk to them about buying right. new this equipment. This is not my, I, I was just being theoretical, yeah, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, but there's other things. So right, you're there. But then just having standard processes, like I was mentioning around quality, around production, right. that you just can quickly rinse, wash, and repeat. Right. So you can... Uh, confirm what's happening is what should be. Right. I don't think it's always the fun part for, you know, I've actually started thinking it's the fun part. <laughs> I think at the beginning you think the brand and the design and yeah. the connection with the consumer and telling the story and that's the fun part. But actually I've got like super wonky now about, yeah. I don't do it every day. So maybe it's yeah. easy for me to say. But I do think that this is the make or break. I really do. I think that is, yeah. I think that there's a lot of stuff out there that looks really good and it really comes down to the quality of the product yep. and the business will at some point no matter how much money they raise from the outside if it's not making money doing what it's doing, it's not going to thrive. Yeah, it's an easy brand killer. Yeah. And you always, I mean, in a lot of the stuff I read, you kind of made the point that you can make more products quicker, yeah. better quality Easily. when you're really watching all of this stuff. Definitely. And I don't want to use two examples to this, but Rothy's had a major issue with they weren't able to scale up one of their open-toed shoes. Interesting. They own their own factory and they still weren't able to do that MPI, new product introduction, right. which is critical. They had tons of marketing assets yep. all around this. They were unable to launch. Interesting. The other recently was Rent the Runway where yep. they're putting a new system and um, it messed up all their orders. And obviously if you're yeah. at a wedding, you need that, or your wedding, yeah. let alone someone else's, you need that dress. And they yep. weren't able to do that for a considerable amount of time. Right. Which really messes up your relationship with your customer. It's for bad. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I clearly love supply chain, but it's right. there's definitely an art form. Yeah. So speaking of um, sort of the, the big 
kind of, um, I guess, the big red flags that you see early on in a company and the stuff that you see early stage companies doing well, what would you say are the red flags? Um, They don't know anything about their suppliers. They don't know where the product's coming from. They typically will use brokers. And if you use a broker, it's fine to understand that, but you would still need to understand where your product's coming from to avoid all those issues around quality or production. Right. So that's a huge red flag. Okay. Um, The other one would be they don't know their cost structures. Okay. Like zero. They have no idea why they're being charged, what they're charging. Right. Or even like overall. Example, a lot of brands, like they bundle everything. So it's like if you're buying this glass that's on the table, like everything would be bundled into that. Right. The, the price of the glass, the logistics, the warehousing, and that's killer for a business. Right, because every little point in there counts. Yeah. Yeah. So those are two big red flags. Okay, last question. Uh, what's the most fun you've had? <laughs> Is it when you got to Harry's? Is it starting your own thing? Is it helping yeah. a company make yeah. a product? Yeah, now it's working with our dozens and dozens, 100 plus uh, brands and like hundreds and hundreds, we're probably around five, 600 suppliers and working with them is just unbelievable. Seeing like what they're doing, how yeah. they're doing it. It's, that's been fun. Yeah, I would think so. And if someone wants to reach out to you, how yeah. do they find you? Yeah. Rodney at anvil.com. A-N-V-Y-L.com. Correct. All right, Rodney, this was amazing. Thank you Thank so you. much. I feel like I'm going to look back in a year again and be like, <laughs> I need to go back to the supply chain questions. Um, but this is so helpful. And it really is something, you know, founders need to focus on. And at the end of the day, even if you don't want to focus on it, your name is on your product. And if it's not quality and it's not safe, you're playing a really dangerous game. Yeah. yeah. And that's the downside. Yeah. Um, anyway, on that positive note, <laughs> thank you for coming thank you for and me. I'll be back. Um, all you loyal listeners next week with another episode of in the sauce in the sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content. Subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.